This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our newest episode of Late Boomers. Today, our guest is Dan Harari, noted Hollywood publicist and owner of the Asbury PR agency of Beverly Hills. During the course of his career, Dan has rubbed shoulders with the music and entertainment industry's biggest stars, ranging from Steven Spielberg to Jerry Seinfeld, Barbara Streisand to the band Kiss, Brooke Shields and Bruce Springsteen and The Who and hundreds of others. And I'm Mary Elkins. He's also the author of three books to date, Carrots, After They Came, and the one we will be talking about today, Flirting with Fame. The the book recounts his teen years working with iconic musicians in his hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey, and his later days in Hollywood working alongside the most famous TV and film stars. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. This is, well, I'm listening to my introduction. I'm like, boy, I'd like to meet that guy. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we're so happy to have met him. Yeah, we're happy to inter- introduce you to our listeners. I'd like to have and a drink. Tell- I'd like to have a drink with that man. <laughs> well, please tell us about your <laughs> early days and what inspired you to become a publicist. Okay, so I have a very I have to say I'm sure my story is very unique in the world. Um I grew up just outside Asbury Park, New Jersey. My parents were from Brooklyn. Uh, They married in Manhattan. They moved to Asbury Park in the early 50s. And I was born, I was actually born in Asbury Park. Um, My dad was an electronics engineer for the government, for the U.S. Army, actually. My dad was a genius uh, electronics engineer for the Army. And my third book, after they came about UFOs, I dedicate to my dad because I actually think my dad knew about UFOs. But he was in a top secret military program and he never he never talked about it, but I have a feeling that he knew because in nineteen seventy my dad and I saw a huge UFO together. It was shaped like a V. Huge silver V. And I was jumping up and down, Dad, a UFO, and my father looked at it like he knew what it was. And after he passed, I called my mother and she told me some more information about my father and now I'm convinced that my dad knew about UFOs. So that's that's why I wrote my book called. Dan, that is amazing because I just an interject and you go back to your story in a minute. My father was an electronics engineer for the government, working in the army, and 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 he never talked about anything they worked on because everything was top secret. Top secret. That's yes. so interesting. Top secret. Early on, I'll go back his, to give well, back to your background. Early on, in <laughs> his, early on, my dad saw something. My dad worked for the Army 1951 to 1996, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, just next to Asbury Park. And in the early 50s, he saw something in the vaults that was top secret. So he came home and my mother and my mother noticed he was white and pale and shaky and very nervous. And she said, honey, what's wrong? And he goes, I saw something today above top secret. I can never tell you as long as I live. And he never told anyone ever his whole life. He never told anyone what it was. I believe he saw a uh, recovered UFO because uh, he was uh, a designer. My dad designed drones. My dad was one of the first people in the world Mm. to help invent drones. Wow. So anyway, that's a whole, I could do UFOs and my dad for hours and I've done it. That's all over the world. That's a whole other story. Anyway, so I grew up in Asbury Park. My dad was worked for the army. My mom was a teacher and a singer and a playwright and an actress. Mm -hmm. So I have half, I'm, I'm an interesting character and, I, and I'm a Gemini. So I'm a Gemini and, my, and I got my mom's creativity brain. I got my dad's science brain. I'm not a genius like he is, was. But uh, so I have the best of science and the best of art, half, half. Hmm. Um, uh, let's see. 
But what inspired you to become a publicist? Well, wait, 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 wait. We're not even close to that yet. Oh, all right. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, uh, but, all right. My dad played trombone. My mother was a singer. So they were both musicians as well. And they were in plays and shows and concerts my whole childhood. So from seven to 10, I played classical piano. I was very, very good at piano. 1966, the monkeys came on TV. I was 10 years old and I fell in love with Mickey Dolan. And I said to my parents, I'm not a pianist anymore. I'm now a drummer. And I've been a drummer. (laughs) I've been a drummer since the day the monkeys came on. I'm still a drummer. I still play the drum. You are. I am a very good drummer. I've been a drummer since 10. And when I met Mickey in 1986, I met Mickey at Columbia Pictures. And I said, Mickey, I go, I've been playing drums my whole life because of you. And he goes, that's cool. I hear that all the time. So that was very cool. I got to meet my childhood hero. So I was in, I played drums in high school. At one point I had extremely long hair. Me and my best friend, Steve, he was a guitarist and we were in a lot of rock bands together and we played at every dance at every high school talent show. And we did all that for years. Along the way, we met an older guy who was doing lighting, stage crew and lights at a little place called the Sunshine Inn in Asbury Park, right near the ocean. And in the early 70s, the Sunshine Inn had the biggest rock bands in the world, in the world, before they were famous. And they all played there. So from age 15 to 18, when this guy went off to college, 15 to 18, me and my best friend Steve ran the Sunshine Inn. And we worked with mm. Kiss before they were famous, Fleetwood Mac before they were Humble Pie, Jay Giles, Steve Purple. Edgar Winter, Martha Hoople, uh, Richie Haven. I mean, the list was incredibly long. The most remarkable ones uh, for Kiss, when we worked with Kiss, it was their first show they ever did that was not in New York City. And when I saw Gene Simmons again a few years ago, I said, Gene, I met you in 1973. He goes, don't you mean 1873? He's a nice guy. And yeah. we worked with Fleetwood Mac before they were famous. But the famous one, of course, is Bruce. Bruce. So, okay. So Bruce was from the Jersey Shore. Uh, my friends and I knew Bruce for years. He played in bars for a dollar, literally a dollar. The first time I ever saw Bruce was at the Jewish YMHA for a dollar. I was in the front row. Uh, he 1972. He didn't even have the E Street Band. It was called the Bruce, Bruce Springsteen and Friends. They spelled his name wrong on the flyer. And one of, to this day, I wish oh. I'd saved it because it said Bruce Springsteen, S-T-E-I-N. <laughs> and we all thought he was Jewish because he played uh-huh. Jewish Y. <laughs> it said Bruce Springsteen, a dollar, a dollar. <laughs> so in 73, uh, I did stage crew and lights with Bruce. Uh, Clarence Clemens, the sax player, had just joined the band that same week. And his first album had just come out that same week. After that show, Clarence asked me and my friend if we wanted to go on the road with them to be their road crew. And I go, Clarence, we're 16, we don't drive, and our fathers want us to go to college. So I turned down, Steve and I turned down being Bruce Springsteen's road crew, which is not a great honor, I don't (laughs) think. But we turned it down. It just didn't make sense to do that. Would Would have changed your career. I, you know, I would have been schlepping amplifiers for 50 years. And be, and I would yeah, be, and you, want, you be, wanted to be a musician. And I'd be deaf. So I don't, I'm glad I turned <laughs> it. It was the right, plus my father would have killed me. If I didn't go to college, my father would have absolutely killed me. Oh, uh, yeah. No um, after high school, so in high school, I worked with the biggest rock bands in the world. Uh, I never got paid there, but it was, but I used to sneak our friends in and we sat inside the stage. There was a pit inside the stage, so. I, I think I made fifty dollars there in in four years. I made fifty dollars. So and we didn't get it. The owner <laughs> never paid us, but it was a remarkable thing to do in retrospect to work there. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I went to Boston University. I studied communications. This is in the seventies, and Howard Stern was in my school two years ahead of me. Howard Stern, the famous radio jock. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw him walking around the halls because he's six six five or something. I didn't meet him then. But he had a radio show then while I was at school there. And my friends used to say, hey, have you heard this crazy guy, Howard Stern? He's so funny. And, you know, I didn't like to wake up at six in the morning, so I never heard him. 
but I knew, but I knew of him. And then when I met him 20 years later, 10 years later in Hollywood, we spoke about Boston University. After college, I got a job in Manhattan through a friend uh, at Columbia Pictures Publicity Department. And this is this, this is uh, 1980. But I lived in, here's the problem. I lived in New Jersey. I had no money at all. I had zero money. And I got a job in Manhattan. So I had a commute from the Jersey Shore mm. to Manhattan. That was four hours a day on a bus. Four hours a day times mm. five, 20 hours a week on a bus. And, and I didn't last. I was there for four months and I couldn't do it. It was so hard to commute. During that time, I did work with Brooke Shields and her mother, terrible Terry Shields. Um, <laughs> they, did, they were promoting the movie The Blue Lagoon, which made Brooke quite famous. So one of my stories is that me, Brooke Shields, and her mother, and no one else on the planet saw the Blue Lagoon together. Just the three of us sat there and watched Blue Lagoon together. And at the end, I said, Brooke, you were really good. And she goes, oh, I was terrible. She goes, I, I wish this movie was never made. I hate it. And I said, mm. why do you say that? You're going to be a big star. And the mom said, Dan, thank you. You're very kind. Everyone hated terrible Terry Shields because she was very scary. She was like a Helen Kushner. Catch. But... Mm -hmm. um. Uh, but but uh, Terry liked me because I was nice to her and Brooks, so I had a nice rapport with her and Brooks. That's good. After so I was there for a few months. I said to my boss, I said I can't commute. I, I, I literally it's killing me. I can't do it. I, I, I can you please let me go so I can get unemployment. So she let me go. That summer I wrote a screenplay on my mother's kitchen table, and then I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my life. I really wasn't quite sure the direction. And then the universe intervened. Um, I had two friends from New Jersey who had just moved to L.A. Un unknown. They didn't know each other. And by coincidence, both of these friends called me and my friend Steve. My friend Steve and I were inseparable in those days. Called us and said, do you want to come visit L.A.? Well, you can sleep on our couch. Two different friends, two different places but the same week that they called. So I said to my father, I go, dad, do you think I should go to LA to visit my friend? And he goes, schmuck, move there. He goes, that's where Hollywood is, that's entertainment. He goes, why don't you just move there? And I said, oh, okay. And the entirety <laughs> of my life, the entirety of my life was decided by my father in those 10 seconds. Because mm. my father said, wow. oh. and I said, yeah. I said, okay. I'm telling you the truth. I didn't know where LA was on the map. I had to get a map. <laughs> of the United, I swear to you, I had to get a map of the United States and go, Oh, there it is. I know where it was. And you were done with college by then. That's bad teaching. <laughs> I knew, I knew, I knew the Jersey shore, Manhattan and Boston. And that was it. Never been, never been anywhere. So California for me at 24 in 1980 was like going to the moon. It was, it was going to the moon. I had no experience at, the, at that level. So wow. I, I sold all my possessions except my drums, which I still have. And I came out <laughs> in October 1980 with my friend Steve. And um, we visited our friends in L.A. Then we went up to San Francisco. Then we went to San Diego. And then he went back. We hugged and he went back. And he went to New York City. Now, i got to tell you about my friend Steve. Steve opened a nightclub in New York City called The Cutting Room, and Lady Gaga was discovered by my friend Steve at The Cutting Room. He's had every wow. rock star you could think of, has played there or had drinks there. And Steve, to this day, I call him Ed, Sul Ed Sullivan meets P.T. Barnum. That's my friend Steve. So he did in New York kind of what I did in Hollywood, and it's very interesting. Of the people we grew up with, we're the only two that ended up in entertainment business. My best, my childhood best friend and I both ended up in show business. For but you guys had the training for it all during high school. You were, you were yeah. getting prepped. That's really That's amazing. Old, it just was very linear. Looking back, my mm -hmm. career was very linear. All right. So 1980 to 81, uh, I was a gopher. Um, I was a receptionist for a porno company. I was a typist, a typist for a Korean law firm. Um, I used to get people's cars wa washed. I, you know, I was a, a typer, a gopher, or a secretary, or a receptionist. I, I, I had 
no, there was nothing linear. It wasn't a career. It was just survival, you know. Um, January 1982, there was an ad in the in the L.A. Times for the, Amer- the American Film Institute, which I'd never heard of. I didn't know what it was, but I saw the word film in there. I applied. I met Gene Furstenberg. Gene was the head of AFI for many, many decades. Mm-hmm. And she said, Dan, I'm going to hire you because you and I both went to Boston University. So Gene Furstenberg discovered me and and saved me. She, she saved me. January 82, because I was I had $6. I was going to have to go home and live with my mother again in Jersey. So she saved my life. I worked at the American <laughs> Institute for a year and a half. Um, my boss was like the principal of the, it was a film college and he was like the principal. Um, probably my funny story at AFI is Robert Wise, the Academy Award winning director, Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a teacher there and every time he had to pee, I had to pee. So me and Robert Wise peed together in that men's room countless times for a year and a half. And every time we did, we would look at each other and say, we simply have got to stop meeting this way. We said it every time and we laughed. We were peeing together, me and Robert Wise. I'm, I have $6 in the world and I'm peeing with an Academy Award winning director. And we laughed about that every single time for two, almost two years. Uh, after that, I, that job got very boring. I was basically typing memos and there was an ad in The Hollywood Reporter for production assistant wanted for the Playboy channel, of all things. So I applied on my birthday, whatever year, 1983, on my birthday, and I got hired that day. It was my birthday. And for six months, I worked for a really dopey TV show at Playboy called The News According to Playboy. And it was like, they, they, they thought it was six, the 60 minutes of sex is how they used to build this show. And it was just really dopey and dumb. And, and I was a production assistant. And I'm thinking, what have I done with my life? It's so stupid. At the end of that six months, there was a notice um, in the in the kitchen. I used to work at the Playboy building on Sunset near La Cienega. I used to have the bunny oh, I up. think you worked with Michael Trachillis, right? I, I, I met, yeah. Yeah. That's right. yeah. Um, it had the bunny on the building. Now it's a different building. They, they crafted it so it's a different building now. But there was an ad that said publicist wanted for the Playboy show. So I applied. I got hired. So January 1st, 1984, this is when I start my clock of being a publicist. January 1st, 84, I was the very first publicist ever for the Playboy show. Now, the sad thing is I had just met my wife and we were engaged to be married. And now I'm meeting the most beautiful girls in America every single day for the next two years. Every single day I'm working and, me- and leading and working with the prettiest girls in the United States of America every single day. Mm-hmm. And, I just, and I was living with my fiance and the timing was very, very, let's just say the timing was very, very bad for me personally. Because these girls, some of them were throwing themselves at me. And I'm like, don't cheat on your wife. Don't cheat on your wife. Can't do it. Can't do it. Don't cheat. So I never did cheat on I worked with Hafner at the mansion for some press conferences we did up there together. He was uh, very nice to me. And, um, you know, I grew up with Playboy magazines. And me and my friends used to steal Playboys, you know, when we were little kids. To look at that was the thing to do then. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was no porn on the Internet then. You know, it was either... Playboys or, you know, Barbara Eden and I Dream a Genie or Tina Louise from Gilligan's Out. There weren't any other sex symbols that you could had your could, that you could see with your eyes. So now, you know, for a guy who grew up with Playboy Mag and now I'm hanging out with Hugh Hefner and I'm working, I'm doing nude photo shoots with the prettiest girls in America, and my wife is calling me, Bring home bread and milk when you come home tonight, you know. It was just an <laughs> incredible dichotomy that that happened. Um, so I was there for several years, Playboy, greatest job in the history of the world for a straight man, except I made no money. I made no money. Oh. The money was horrible. But as a straight man, it was the most, my, all my friends were so jealous 
<laughs> yeah, I bet. I had the best job I in the United States. After that, I ended up at Columbia Pictures Television as a senior publicist. I met someone, and that changed my life because now I was making three times my salary at Play. Well, I have to ask you now, tell us about some of the big projects you've worked on. Um, well, I was. do you want me to finish out the linear? Because this is 30 years ago is where I'm up to now. <laughs> yeah. let, me, I'm gonna, let me glass over and then I'll answer you, can I? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I was at Columbia Television for several years, and I met a lot of big stars there. Then I worked for Lee Solters, who's a very famous publicist who passed away. But when I worked for I know, Lee Solters, uh, he had Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Dolly Parton, Jay Leno, and Van Halen all at the same time, all the biggest stars in the world. I was Jay Leno's publicist for two years during uh, when I worked with Lee Solters. Then from there, I went to the Lippin Group, which I don't like talking about because it was a hard period of my life. Um, but I was there for almost eight years and I developed a following of clients because I'm good at what I do. So now we come to 1996. I turned 40. I had an epiphany. I was at a meeting with some clients in the, in, at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills and the chandelier. I swear to you, the chandelier in, in the Beverly Hills, the Four Seasons, the chandelier said, Dan, start your own business. As I'm in a meeting, it's a Dan, start your own business. I looked up. I said, what? And I said, oh, okay. And I went home. And the next two days later, I had a million-dollar business from the, the chandelier told me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I went there the other day to say, I really did. The other day, I said, thank you. This is the chandelier. It's still there. Is it the same chandelier? <laughs> it saved my life. So yeah, it changed, changed my life entirely. Chandelier. Yeah, that sounds great. Changed my life. Okay. Well, you got to listen to those things. It was remarkable. You do. My mother goes, don't tell anyone. They'll think you're insane. I said, Mom, it's a true story. The chandelier spoke. So that's <laughs> how I launched Asbury PR Agency. So this year, it's 27 years old. It's just me. When I started it, I had six full-time employees in Hollywood and a guy in New York. Um, Gee. Now, now it's just me. Um, it's been very successful. I have an, an incredible run. Um, today, my two biggest clients are, are restaurants. Uh, I represent Musu and Frank in Hollywood, the most famous restaurant in LA. Mm. I got them when Mary they and my we love Musos. We go loves, a lot. Everyone, we loves. do. I got them when they turned hundred in advance of their hundredth. I wrote a snail mail letter to the owner. And I said, you don't know me, but I've been going there 35 years. I know you're about to turn 100. I'm a major publicist. I really would like to meet you and be involved. And he invited me to lunch. And I've been his publicist for over four years now. So I did all the mm -hmm. PR for the 100th year anniversary. Uh, I helped them get a star. In the, they're the only restaurant that ever got a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Nice. That's uncanny. That's really an accomplishment. They, mm -hmm. uh, they have a book that I helped promote. And um, they opened some new dining rooms at the end of 2021, which I did. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm considered a member of the Musu and Frank family, which is probably the, big, lovely. probably the honor. It's probably the biggest honor of my career. I also represent mm -hmm. El Cholo Mexican restaurant. They, Great restaurant. And they turned a hundred this year. They're a hundred right now. Mm -hmm. this year. So we're doing a lot of press. I got them into the New York times. We're doing a, a lot of press for their 100th anniversary. Um, Mary, to answer you, over the course of my life, I've worked Grammy Awards. I've worked a bunch of AFI Lifetime Achievement Awards. I invented the Environmental Media Awards. I literally invented that one. And I ran that for PR for the first four years, I think it was. Um, uh, I, I opened a, a Space Center Houston for NASA. Uh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, God, what have I done? I announced the sequel to um, It's a Wonderful Life. There was a few years ago, there was going to be a sequel to It's a Wonderful Life. I announced that. It ran all over the world. And then three weeks later, the producer died. <laughs> so that never happened. Oh. No, 
That's kind of a funny story. Tell us some of your other funniest celebrity stories. Well, no, that's a whole, that's a whole, that's my whole book. That's my whole book, Flirting with Fame. That's my whole book. Oh, yeah. Um, 1980. Tell us a few. Sure. 1981. (laughs) I just got to LA. Uh, I used to get people's cars washed. That was my job. I was a gopher. I got people's cars washed. I'm getting a BMW or, or Mercedes, whatever it was, uh, washed the sunset car wash on Sunset Boulevard. I have literally $6 to my name in life. That's a true story. Six. My dad had to come and give me money. I had $6. I'm driving a, a BMW to the sunset car wash. I get out. Next to me is Jerry Seinfeld getting his car washed. We're the only two people at the car wash. I had seen him a year before in Manhattan and with my friend Steve, and we laughed so hard. We were crying into our cocktail napkins. He was so incredibly funny. So now it's 81. I go, Jerry Seinfeld? He goes, yes. I go, my name is Dan. And I shook his hand and I said, I'm your biggest fan. To which he said, gee, I didn't know I had any fans. That's a true story. <laughs> I'm Jerry Seinfeld's very, very first fan. Um, we spoke hmm. for a bit and then I said, Jerry, you know, you just moved out here. I just moved out here. We're about the same age. Can we be friends? I said to Jerry, can we be friends? And he hemmed and hawed. And he said, well, if you want to get me, here's my manager's business card. And that was the end of that. 12 years later, 12 years later, 1993, I met Jerry again in uh, San Francisco at a Natby TV convention. Now he's famous because he's selling this, the Seinfeld show. When I met him in 81, no one knew him. Oh, when I met him in 81, I said, why are you getting your car washed? Any particular reason? He goes, yeah, I'm about to make my debut on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. <laughs> he made his debut the day I met him that night. Wow. Mm-hmm. 1993, San Francisco. I bumped into him. Now he's the biggest comedian in the world. And I said, Jerry, we met in 1981 at the Sunset Car Wash. You made your debut on The Tonight Show. And he goes, I remember you. You wanted to be my friend. He pulled his hand (laughs) out of our handshake and he turned and he walked away. He probably thought I was gay. I met him in Hollywood (laughs) at the Sunset Car Wash. Yeah, (laughs) I guess so. He remembered me Um, from 12 years earlier. I remember you. You wanted to be my friend. So that always, always gets a big laugh, big laugh. Yeah, it's it's really <laughs> strange and it's weird. It's a great story. So Hollywood. Um, yeah, but. 1996, I'm at the Friars Club. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Milton Berle were the guests of honor. I knew Arnold would be there. My son was a huge, huge fan of the Terminator. He was eight years old at the time. So I knew Arnold would be there. I told my son, I'll try to get you Arnold's autograph. So I walk in with a photograph of Arnold as the Terminator with a white marking pen added in my hand. And during a break in the evening, people weren't eating. It was just a break. I went up to my tablet on the shoulder. I go, Arnold, my name is Dan. I go, my son is eight years old. He loves the Terminator. He's, he's such a fan of yours. Could I possibly have an argument? So I presented Arnold with the pen and the photo. He looked at me like this. He growled at you. <laughs> I swear. So I'm like, Arnold, uh, he's eight years old. You know, it'll take you two seconds, ma'am. Please, can you do this for me? <laughs> steam is shooting out of his head. Literally, steam. Bright red. He's so angry, like he wanted to kill me or eat me or both. <laughs> like this. Now I'm starting to shake, but I'm thinking, you know, I'm not leaving without this autograph for my son. I'm not going to leave. So we had a, these two huge bodyguards were standing right behind me. So I'm like, one of us. Yeah, has- because he'd already been the governor by that time. He was done being the governor. No, no, this is before he was the governor. This is 96. Oh. This is 96. This is before oh, okay. he became mm. the governor. These two guys had the little earbuds, this, this like secret service. Stuff. They were like this, like they were going to, I was going to get killed for this autograph. I just said, please, Arnold, please, come on. It will mean so much to him. So finally he grabs the pen and the, and the photo, and he writes, to Jordan, best wishes, Arnold, Terminators, whatever. And he goes, give it, er, give it back. I got the <laughs> autograph. <laughs> my son has it on his wall in Alaska. 
And we got it. It worked, but boy, was he pissed. He never said one word to me in English. It was just animal sounds. Oh, gee. <laughs> well, your your book is it's just, I've, I've been reading it. It's such fun, Flirting with Fame. Okay. And I mean, did you keep a diary, a journal of all of these meetings? Because you re- seem to remember so many. And also, I have to ask you why you decided to write it all down and become an author? Great questions. Um, It was, when did I write that? It was COVID. So when COVID really kicked in 2020, uh, my PR business just slowed down tremendously. And I had very little to do. And one day I just literally sat on my couch and I took a piece of paper and I said, I've met a, to myself, I've met a lot of celebrities. I should write them down. And I just wrote down as many celebrities as I've ever met in my life uh, on a piece of paper. And it was page and it's page after page after page. And then so many, I was like, wow, maybe this is a book. That's what I said to my, maybe this is a book. Then I put them in chronological order of how I met them. And um, and then I just sat and wrote the book from 2020 to like 2021. I just wrote it. It just came out. It just came out. I'm like an idiot savant with my memory. Like once, and I think it's like, I was about to ask something like that because I I yeah. I can't believe that you remembered all of that and what people said to you. Chris Gardner did a big interview with me for the Hollywood Reporter, and he said, "Dan, you have an insane memory." And I said, I'm either an idiot or a savant or both. You know, I don't know what I am. Yeah. It just came out. So I just started writing. And so from 2020 to 2021, it took me about a year or less to write the book. And then I went through all my scrapbooks and I realized how many photos I had. I have, Mary, you'll see in the book, you know, there's so many photos of me with celebrities. So then I had to go back through time and track down the photographers or the celebrities mm-hmm. of every one of those photos to get approvals. That took eight months. That took eight months. <laughs> Once I had that Man. all done, I said to myself, all right, I have a book. What do I do now? Do you know Ray Richmond? Mary, do you know the name? Yeah. You know Ray? Very well. Ray's one of my best friends. Okay. So I called Ray. I go, Ray, I just wrote this dopey book about my Hollywood career. Now, <laughs> Ray has about a dozen books that he's written for others. <laughs> he wrote some books about The Simpsons, I know. So I said, any ideas? And he goes, yeah, there's a company in Florida called Bear Manor, B-E-A-R, Bear Manor Media. They publish books about Hollywood. He goes, why don't you oh. write to them? I said, okay. And this is this part you're not even going to believe because I still don't believe this part myself. I finished the book. I called Ray. He said, reach out to Bear Manor. I emailed Bear Manor. I said, you don't know me. I'm a Hollywood publicist. Uh, Here's who I am and what I've done. Here are some pictures. And one hour later, he goes, not only am I going to publish you, here's your contract. One hour later. What a story. I finished the book. And one hour later, I got a contract for a published book. And and, and talk about something that's amazing. Talk about something. Every writer on the planet will be jealous of you. I literally thought, you know, here's the rest of my life trying to hawk this book. One hour, I swear, it took what might have been less than an hour. So that's how. Well, you know what? Dan, I think you may have had more celebrity encounters than anyone else on the planet. So if you aren't in it already, you ought to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. Well, do you have any idea of how many you've met since you made that list? And is there any one person you haven't met that you'd love to meet or work with? Great question. First one, let me interject. I'm reading a book right now called Get Mahoney. It's about Jim Mahoney. Do you know who, remember Jim Mahoney? Jim Mahoney. I don't. It's the best. Jim Mahoney was the publicist for Clark Gable, Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, Bob Hope. Um, uh, uh, everyone you can name in the early, in the earliest days, I'm reading his book, get Mahoney. And it's the best book about Hollywood that I've ever read. And it's the best book about mm. public relations ever written. It, it blows my book out of the water. 
So uh, Mahoney, uh, Jim Mahoney is the king of meeting celebrities. No one met more celebrities than he handled the Rat Pack when they were the Rat Pack. Mm -hmm. No one had more celebrities than Jim Mahoney. Um, I'd say several hundred that I've met or worked with. Some people, Jerry Lewis winked at me. You know, Madonna winked at me. Um, um, some people waved to me. I, I throw all those in. I mean, you know, I didn't meet them, but Jerry Lewis winked at me, man. I, I was like, <laughs> I was comedy hero. I didn't have the courage to meet him. Um, but who's on your bucket list to meet or work with? Yeah. Someone asked me that recently. I would say the only two people I'd really like to meet before I die would be Barack Obama and Paul McCartney. Oh. And in fact, Paul McCartney uh, winked at me. Paul McCartney winked at me. It's in the book. I was in the front row in Boston, sitting with like six beautiful girls. We were we we had a Beatles fan club. I was the only guy sitting with six beautiful girls front row. And Paul looked over at me. I think he went like this with with the thumb because he saw me with all these girls. And I yeah. think I, we either winked or <laughs> but that was the closest I ever came to a Beatle was with Paul McCartney. <laughs> I'd say Paul and uh, Barack Obama. No one else really would mean that much to me. Yeah. Fabulous list. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, tell us a little more about your celebrity encounters. And were there any encounters that perhaps you'd like to forget? Well, that, le that leads us to the, my famous Meryl Streep story. That, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one. It still, <laughs> makes, it still makes me cringe to this day. Nineteen. <laughs> I think it was 1990, 1990. I worked for the Lippin Group at the time. Um, we were t working with Time. It was Time Warner Television. They had a TV show called the, the Time Warner Earth Day Special. I believe it was 1990, the Earth Day Special. And they had a lot of stars on that show talking about the environment and how important the environment was. For the photo shoot for that, uh, the key art for that show was a photo session with Kevin Costner and Meryl Streep, the two of them holding up a little sapling tree. So I was at the photo shoot it was at the old ABC in Century City, where the, like the Schubert Theater was. It's not there anymore. Um, it was me, all these executives from ABC and a lot of executives from Warner Brothers. And Kevin Costner was there and he was early. So we were mingling with him, and this is before he was super famous, and he's a very easy guy to talk to. And then someone said, she's, she's here. Someone said to me, she's here. And I said, who's here? And they said, Meryl Streep. I said, Meryl Streep's coming? I, I, no one told me that she was going to be there. Now, she was the biggest star in the world at the time, you know, 1990. Meryl Streep's the biggest star in the world. So everyone's like, she's coming, she's coming, she's coming. So there must have been 25, 30 executives there. So we all stood in a line like the like the Queen of England reception line at this photo studio in ABC in Century City, the reception line. And the doors open. It's bright sun outside. And she comes in. She's all dressed in white. And, and like you hear the angels like, ah, it was like Mother Mary. <laughs> it was literally like Mother Mary herself, literally Mother Mary just walking. Oh, you hear the angels thinking. The sun is from behind her. You can't even see her face. She lifts her arms up like, like this, like to greet the little people, right? So everyone's like, Meryl Streep's here. Meryl Streep. Everyone's like buzzing and buzzing. So my heart starts pounding, and I don't even like Meryl Streep. I couldn't care less. But because everyone was so hyped up, I started getting nervous. So she goes to the front of the line. Hi, Miss Streep. My name is Bill. I'm the head of Warner Brothers Television. And then to the next, to the next, to the next. Meryl Streep went down the line, literally like the Queen of England, to all these people from Warner Brothers and all these people from ABC. I'm at the very tail end of this very long line. I'm at the very tail end. So she comes, comes along, and I'm thinking, what do I say to Meryl Streep? What do I say to Meryl Streep? Why was I? I've never been a fan. <laughs> like I just, it wasn't Paul McCartney. I so I'm still. I don't know why I got so nervous, but I was very, very nervous. Next to me was a woman named Carla from Warner Brothers. Now, right next to me, Carla from Warner Brothers, and then me at the end. So Meryl Streep thumbs up. 
Now Merrill comes to Carla. Carla goes, Miss Street, my name is Carla from Warner Brothers. Such a big fan. Such an honor to meet you. They shake hands, okay? I'm next, and I'm last. <laughs> Meryl Streep now comes to me, puts out her hand, and I go, hello, Carla. My name is Dan. I'm a publicist. <laughs> Carla. <laughs> I, called, I called Meryl Streep Carla. I called Meryl Streep Carla. She looked at me like, what? What's this? Like the RCA Victor dog, remember? Like, like what? <laughs> and she pulled her hand out, walked away. My heart's beating. My hands are shaking. My friend Carla goes, Dan, you just called Meryl Streep Carla. I said, I did? Really? <laughs> I you didn't even hear yourself. I, I have no memory of that. So to this day, when I saw her later in the afternoon, and when I went to talk to her, she thought I was Lee Harvey Oswald, so she fled every time she saw me. So that's my mm-hmm. biggest blunder by far was calling Meryl Streep yeah. by the wrong that's name. Meryl but it makes a great story. <laughs> it had, does. I've had friends crying laughing, literally crying laughing. Yeah, that's it's a good story. <laughs> great story. <laughs> my best one. I have a good Julia Louis Dreyfus story. You like that one? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um. At the very first Environmental Media Awards was 1992, I think it was, at uh, Sony Studios. I was the publicist on the red carpet. We had press from all over the world. It was huge. So many big stars there. We had Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Sting, um, Shirley MacLaine, um, Al Gore was the vice president. We had so many major people for that one. So I'm on the red carpet. and. Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus from Seinfeld is the very last celebrity to come onto the red carpet. And, you know, that, that show was only big for maybe a year at that time. So she was not yet as famous as she is now. But she was a known person, but not a superstar like she is now. I had met her at a luncheon a few months earlier for the Environmental Media Awards. We talked at a luncheon. So I had already met her. So imagine the scene. There's bleachers with all the press in the world, like the Oscars. There's bleachers, all the press in the world. There's a soundstage where the event's going to happen. There's a red carpet. There's me. And now here comes Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Julia comes with a, I think it was a blue, sky blue, beautiful dress. And there's a tag, a sales tag on her dress, like this, sticking out, a sales tag, sticking out from Mm -hmm. her dress. Right? So I ran up to her. I go, Julia, you have a sales tag on your dress. She goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Do something. Do something. Do something. So I somehow ripped off <laughs> I ripped off the tag without ruining the dress. And that's the most amazing part of this story. But I ripped off the tag. And, yeah. And I said, Julia, all the press in the world is right there. And she goes, oh, my God. Can you even imagine? And we started laughing so hard. We were crying, crying, laughing. Because I saved, she would have done all the press in the world with a a sales tag. Oh, gee. (laughs) And she would never have gotten over that, right? It would have been horrible. So that's when I bonded with Julia (laughs) Louis-Dreyfus. Good bonding story. That's great. Yeah, that's that's great. (laughs) I I love that story. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dan, we haven't really talked about what the job of a publicist entails, what what do you do as a publicist, and what advice would you give to someone who wants to be a Hollywood publicist? Um, most people think, well, okay, there's different kinds of Hollywood publicists. The most people think a Hollywood publicist is a celebrity publicist, a celebrity publicist that gets their, you know, clients into the media walks the red carpets with them and goes to parties and events and makes sure that they're in the press or not in the press. And there's a lot of, lot of people in Hollywood who are celebrity publicists. And the only, so I've only handled a few. I'm not, I don't consider myself a celebrity publicist. I did have Jay Leno for years. I had Sid Caesar for years. I had Dixie Carter for a while, but I, I've never considered myself a Hollywood, a, a celebrity publicist. So that's one thing is you take care of your celebrity. I was always more a, maybe a a corporate entertainment publicist. 
most of my clients that I've had in the last 30 years have been production companies, post-production companies, um, independent films, um, uh, CD releases, video games, books, art shows, lawyer, entertainment lawyers. Um, so I, I, I don't specialize in celebrities. And, and here's two big reasons why. Celebrities will call you at three in the morning and they'll yell at you, how come I'm not the cover yeah. of People magazine? And celebrities don't pay publicists very much. I remember Lee Salters uh, charged Barbara Streisand like a thousand a month. And, and I once said to him, why so little? He goes, she's Barbara Streisand. If you have her, you can get, you can get anything. You know, you can call the New York Times and get, you know, Stephen Eady, who he had also. You can call anyone and leverage Barbara Streisand for your other clients. So big celebrities don't pay a lot of money and they call you in the middle of the night and they cry because they're not on the cover of TV guy. So that's why I never did celebrities. Um, I've made a very good living handling companies. Uh, for when I started my business, I had every special effects company, literally, I had every special effects company in Hollywood. I had every broadcast design company in Hollywood. I had every music production library in Hollywood. I was the guy for PR, for behind the scenes, artisans. Variety mm -hmm. now has a section called artisans. But I was the, I invented PR, <laughs> not invented, but I made a, a very good living being the publicist for artists behind the scenes. But didn't you work on uh, promoting Ghostbusters and uh, films like that? That's what, well, I worked on the real, the real Ghostbusters TV show. That's when I worked at Columbia Pictures Television. That's long before I had my own business. That was mm -hmm. long before I had my own business. Well, tell us what's next for you and what would you like our audience to have as a takeaway today? Um, I'm still a Hollywood publicist. If anyone out there has an interesting <laughs> project or a restaurant, I love doing PR for restaurants. It's been tremendous fun. I'm, I'm trying to get the pantry for next year. The pantry will turn a hundred. Oh, I'm in touch. Wow. With, I'm in touch with Mayor Reardon's uh, daughters. They own the pantry and that turns a hundred. I didn't year. know that. Mayor Reardon. And you also have a new book coming out too, right? I have. So, Flirting with Fang was my first book. Um, I wrote a sex book that came out last year about sex addiction and my how I overcame that. And that's called Carrot. Nobody on the planet cared about that book. No one cared at all. So I don't really talk about it very much. <laughs> that was a passion yeah. project for me. My third book came out March 1st this year. It's called After They Came. It's a science fiction novel. It's about a benevolent alien to come to Earth and they save a man who is drowning himself on his 70th birthday. He's drowning himself in the Pacific because he hates his life. He's miserable and he's suicidal. He hates his life. As he's drowning, a huge UFO shoots up from the Pacific, beams him on board, saves his life, and then they go goes to Dodger Stadium, and it the aliens are beautiful, tall, Nordic, long white hair, pale white skin, and they go, people of Earth, don't be alarmed. Um, we love you. We're here to save mankind. And um, we're here to solve all your problems. But we'll, we'll only work with this guy who we just fished out of the ocean. We have a relationship that's very special with this guy. So bring your problems to him and we will work through him. In a nutshell, that's after they came. Now, I have been getting press all over the world for that book. I am the darling of the UFO research community. The last three months, I have made friends with major, major UFO researchers around the world. I've gotten reviews on that book from the top UFO researchers, literally in the world, and they've all told me wow. they've all told me it needs to be a movie. Um, so I need I need help to make after they came into a movie. That's my goal right now in life. That nice. That I'd live to see my daughter get married. Those are my only two goals I have left in life. <laughs> Great. My, my, you have another book coming out too, don't you? Next spring, I have my fourth book. It's going to be called My Paranormal Life. And that's, uh, that's ghosts, poltergeists, goblins, UFOs, um, angelic voices, 
ESP, mind reading. These are all, I look back at my life starting from the age of five. I had an interesting encounter when I was five. I was climbing a billboard sign with some little girlfriends and I fell off the sign when I was five years old. I felt, and I remember clearly falling through the air. And the next thing I did is I woke up on a couch in a house down the street from my house. And when I woke up, there was a creature leaving the house. And the creature was this big, white, evil, odd-looking thing with, with wings. And he snorted at me and he left. And I think it was a gargoyle, believe it or not. I've researched gargoyles save, uh, protect people in buildings. So I think a gargoyle <laughs> saved me when I was five. It's a clear vision. My mother goes, you were dreaming. It was just a dream. I go, mom, no. It's my very first memory. I remember it clearly. It's a lot of weird off the wall. I'm very much into supernatural, paranormal. I've seen three UFOs. Uh, so that one's called My Paranormal Life, and that comes out next next March. Well, we can't Fabulous. wait to read that. that sounds yeah, fun. it sounds wonderful. Thank you, Dan. Oh. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Dan Harari, publicist extraordinaire who has bumped shoulders with more celebrities than you can count, owner of the Asbury PR agency of Beverly Hills, and author of three books to date, Flirting with Fame, Carrots, After They Came. You can buy them on Amazon, and you can reach Dan at danhariauthor.com and asburypr.com. Thank you again, Dan. Oh, so much fun, man. That went so quickly. That was great. Yeah. We want to remind you, our listeners, to follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. And please subscribe to our new YouTube channel, Late Boomers Podcast, where you can watch our conversation with Dan. And also please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss an episode. Thanks so much again, Dan. Uh, thank you. It was so much fun. I'd love to do it again in the future. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.